guest today is Livia Hens, a graduate student at the European University Institute in lovely Fiesole. I have to confess, if I were a graduate student there, I think I would never submit my doctoral thesis. I would just be a graduate student in perpetuity until they kicked me out, which they probably would soon after they realized my complete lack of interest in ever graduating from that piece of paradise. But Livia is a wonderfully industrious, smart, creative, and that's why we've invited her to our podcast to talk about a topic that is generating more and more interest. And that is the topic of investment treaties and how investment treaty language has been evolving. Now, Livia has also done other interesting work. I mean, it's amazing. She's published at least two papers in top journals uh, before even graduating, which is putting many of us to shame. I don't think I'd even have written a paper, let alone published a paper, uh, but um, she's putting us to shame. But we want her on our podcast uh, so that we can say that we had her first before she becomes world famous. Now, Livia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for your very kind introduction, me too. And let me just say that I would also like to stay at the EY forever, but um, someone told me that the money runs out at a certain point, so it doesn't seem to be working. Oh, no, this is a darn money thing. Oh, well, but let's start uh, into the substance then. Could you give us a sense of why you became interested in the intersection of investment treaties and sovereign debt. And here is my background on this, which is very uninformed. Uh, I teach a class on sovereign debt. Mark and I often teach this class together. And we don't usually spend a lot of time on investment treaty-based claims. And that might be a mistake, but my impression is that nobody even thought about this until there was a weird set of claims brought in the Argentine litigation over their 2001 default. And if I'm correct, it was a set of Italian sort of retail investors. I, I was at a conference one where the lawyer was talking about how it was all Italian widows and orphans, which I, I thought was just complete bullshit. Uh, this guy in, you know, in his uh, $7,000 uh, outfit was talking about how he was saving widows and orphans. But um, Mark's probably going to stop me from talking about uh, that. But he, can you tell us, give us some background on how investment treaties became even relevant in the sovereign debt world and how you got interested in it? Because if I remember correctly, uh, you are Italian, right? Yes, I am Italian, exactly. Though I'm not sure this is um, 
directly relevant for my interest in uh, investment treaties specifically. But I think um, in order to understand why the investment treaty system is relevant for, for sovereign debt, it is maybe useful to um, go back a, a little bit to the origins of the investment treaty system. So the modern system of investment treaties expanded uh, in the 80s and 90s with the growth of the network of these uh, international treaties concerning the protection of foreign investments. But the origins of this system in its embryonic form date back to the 60s and uh, 70s, when bilateral negotiations on the protection of foreign investments emerged as an attempt by what uh, were then mostly uh, Western capital exporting countries to counteract a downward shift in customary international law norms on the protection of foreign property following contestations by newly independent developing countries. So given this historical background, as one would expect, investment treaties um, had a rather expansive scope. And the definition of investment that emerged already in this early agreement and that then became entrenched within the system is very broad and it encompasses uh, every kind of uh, asset uh, owned or controlled by a foreign investor um, followed by a, a list of assets which typically includes property and property related rights as well as for our purposes uh, claims to money. So it becomes clear that given the expansive scope of uh, investment treaties, um, sovereign debt instruments in the form of loans or bonds can be deemed to constitute protected investments under these treaties. And this means that the holders of sovereign debt instruments uh, might benefit from investment protection, including access to investment arbitration. And in the context, so, Liv Livia, yeah? just just to clarify what go it goes on there, is the is the right under an investment treaty uh, limited to say citizens or residents of the country that signs the treaty? So, for example, let's say that uh, Belgium has a investment treaty with uh, the Republic of Congo. So then all yes. uh, Belgian residents or citizens uh, have like a extra claim that over and above other investors in the bonds uh, when there is a default, is is that so? It's like a the country negotiates for extra rights, and then if I'm a citizen of Belgium, but then I get dual citizenship in the United States, then I get like double rights. Or if I switch citizenship to India, then I lose all my rights. Is that what's going on? Well. Uh... Yes, mostly. So the actually the access to arbitration and the benefit of the treaties uh, is limited 
to the nationals of the treaty parties. So yes, the dynamic is um, actually what, what you have uh, described. Just to carry this thought through, does the how do we decide when the the claim has accrued? And it probably depends on what the nature of the claim is. But if we're thinking about the Argentine case, I mean, I think me too. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm sensing that the subtext of this question is to the extent this alternative dispute resolution system is important in sovereign debt cases you'd think bonds would just migrate over to the to holders in the countries where these treaties are in effect. So, me too. Are, are exactly. you interested in exactly. why, the, why it's just a bunch of Italian retail holders rather than like everyone who wants to, to get Correct. a second bite at the apple or, or yes. a second forum? Yes, I, you articulated my question uh, much better than I did. I mean, it, it, from a market point of view, this this seems like it's a situation that would predict that everybody would just set up uh, holding companies in whatever country has the best rights, and then you just have your bonds held by that holding company that is a national of that country. And then they would have lots and lots of extra contractual rights. And it would increase the cost of capital for whatever country uh, that has to borrow. And then you'd have to change the investment treaty if you think that additional contractual rights are increasing the cost of capital. But you one can play this out, and so that to going back to the the Italian situation, like why the hell are we? Were there just Italian investors? Why wasn't Elliott Associates, you know, trying to do investment treaty litigation? Well, uh, the arbitrations there were brought on under the Italy Argentina BIT of uh, 1990, which had a very broad definition of uh, investment. I think the dynamic that you are uh, underlying is um, theoretically possible and actually uh, obviously ascertaining the um, holding of uh, securities which uh, circulate on the secondary market is one of the most challenging aspects with regard to investment arbitration on sovereign bonds. But there is one uh, element that maybe uh, mitigates um, a similar dynamic, which is that the investment treaty regime has become so pervasive that it is very difficult to identify pairs of countries, so to say, that do not have some form of uh, investment treaty in place. So I'm not really sure if the existence of um, specific investment treaties can play out in market dynamics in the way you describe but it is a very so, interesting Olivia, thought. The, are you saying that the 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 rights so the investment treaty ha, regime has evolved in a way in which everybody who invests in this market basically has the same rights because all these investment treaties are basically identical they they just give everybody around the world and an extra alternative forum in which you might be able to bring extra alternative claims. Well, let me just say that it is very um, unlikely 
that uh, if uh, a national from country A invests in a bond uh, of country B, there is no uh, investment treaty in place between country A and country B. It can happen, but it is very unlikely. Uh, investment treaties are not uh, are not identical, um, or let's put it this way: they are very very similar and provide the same uh, set of substantive uh, uh, protections. But at the same time, we are witnessing an increasing degree of fragmentation and experimentation in the regime, as I outline in uh, a paper we might maybe talk about later. Um, and this, um, in, in, in my view, um, determines that it's the protections provided by investment treaties might, might not be identical. And if we think, for example, you mentioned the Argentine cases, another case uh, with uh, in, in a very similar um, circumstance, which was the uh, case, uh, the post of a banca case following the Greek debt restructuring. Well, in that case, given that the language of the investment treaty was slightly different, the investment tribunal declined uh, its jurisdiction. Whereas in the Argentine cases, the investment tribunals all found that they had jurisdiction to hear the claims brought by mostly Italian bondholders on the basis of a different in the wording of the treaties. So this actually is a really interesting lead-in, I think, to the research uh, that you referenced there and that I definitely do want to talk about because the, the fact that we see all these changes in treaty drafting practices maybe is a sign that um, uh, investment treaty arbitration is or could be a lot more important in this market than skeptical people like me, frankly, um, ha have been assuming that it is. But I want to sort of as a to to lead our way into that discussion, I do want to ask you to say a little bit more about why investment treaty arbitration might be important in the sovereign debt cases, because it another way to look at the Argentine uh, arbitrations and litigations is that the I don't know how to put this so I'm going to put it I'm going to put it bluntly and cynically the dumb unsophisticated money went to the bit system and the smart sophisticated money went to the court system in New York which isn't really what I would have expected if the rights that these bilateral investment treaties grant are really potent. So I'm sure I'm missing part of that story. So, so can you just, you talk a little bit about why these rights actually could be quite significant? So I think that you are right in pointing out that the practical relevance of the arbitrations in uh, the Argentine uh, cases and also in the Greek case in the end um, is limited both in terms of recovery prospect and in terms of actual outcome of those cases because with regards to the Argentine cases two were discontinued and one case was settled so none of these cases reached the merit stage but still um, I think these cases are relevant in the sense that uh, they might provide um, 
an important uh, precedent and uh, there is no formal rule of precedent in the investment uh, arbitration system but investment treaties uh, so investment uh, tribunals tend to rely to a significant extent on um, previous invest decisions in their reasoning so all these tribunals adopted a, a rather um, liberal approach to the definition of investment and particularly to the existence of a territorial link, um, so a connection between securities traded on the secondary market, so government bonds and security entitlements on those bonds, and the host uh, state. So I think that the relevance of these de decisions lies in their uh, potential as precedents opening up the possibility of uh, uh, holdout creditors using arbitration as a, an alternative way to enforce sovereign debt claims, even though it must be said that I understand the critique in the sense that um, the specific rights provided by um, investment agreements were not developed uh, having sovereign bonds in mind, of course. So these are more general um, protections of fair and equitable treatment, anti-discrimination standards, uh, prohibition against indirect expropriations that might be less effective with regards to sovereign bond claims as compared to uh, contractual grounds of action, so to say. But Still, I think that the existence of an alternative level of possible enforcement of sovereign debt claims and international law level is relevant in itself. So, and, and it seems like it's been relevant to treaty drafters. So I, I do, I, can you tell us a bit about what you found in terms of how treaties have evolved in a number of ways, it may be in response to these developments, certainly after the uh, these developments? Sure. So um, actually, I looked at a treaty drafting practice uh, before um, the cluster of investment disputes concerning Argentina and Greece and after that period. And I actually found that these um, investment arbitrations certainly accelerated a shift in treaty drafting practice with the increasing inclusion of specific disciplines in investment treaties with regards to um, sovereign debt. So um, in the period before the Greek uh, and uh, the, the Argentine and Greek cases, so in the period between 2007 and 2011, only 11% of all negotiated um, agreements included a specific discipline on sovereign debt. Whereas, and, and Livia, I'm yeah. sorry, can you, you, I'm, I'm a little bit slow. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by a discipline? Sure. Yes. Um, so this is the an interesting uh, the, the interesting part actually um there is a shift in treaty drafting practice in the sense that investment treaties increasingly either exclude or include sovereign debt or uh, devise specific limitations with regards to the possibility to submit claims in relation to negotiated uh, restructurings so 
what I want to say is that there is a shift in treaty drafting practice in the sense that as compared to previous periods, treaties increasingly mention sovereign debt and provide a specific treatment for sovereign debt uh, claims. Um, but Livia, can, is, just, can I yeah. just ask a clarification? So is this, are we seeing that treaties are being modified or revised or are we seeing that in new treaties that are being drafted uh, there is a change in language so That's in the contract world this would be a major uh, difference that one would have to pay attention to I'm guessing that you looked at it. I, I'm just curious. Is like, are, did they go back and revise old treaties, or no. is it just new treaties that are having this? It's it's new treaties. So um, it is new treaties that are um, that are being drafted, paying attention uh, to the interaction of investment protections with sovereign debt instruments. So. Um, I have to say, though, that uh, it is not common for treaties, investment treaties, to be revised. Sometimes there is a termination. For example, some countries, such as uh, India, uh, terminated uh, most of its uh, investment treaties, um, trying to to modify, in in a general sense, and not only regarding uh, sovereign debt, its uh, investment policy. But it is not common for investment treaties to be revised. However, one can observe a shift in treaty drafting practice uh, in the sense of uh, the new treaties uh, being drafted according to different terms. And with regards to sovereign debt, I think this dynamic is interesting because one would expect a similar development in all the treaties. And that's not what we see. We see uh, three trends emerging, the ones that I described above. Uh, so uh, inclusion, exclusion, and this weird coordination where treaties tend to limit the possibility to submit claims only in relation to negotiated restructurings. And this difference in treaty drafting practice, to my mind, signals different policy approaches by treaty parties as to the interaction uh, of investment protections with sovereign debt instruments. Can, and can I we talk? Like, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead and, uh, before I ask my question. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, uh, so I, I would like just to um, add another thought because uh, in our discussion we have been focusing on the um, Argentine and Greek cases, which are obviously the most um, famous ones. And these cases are very relevant because these investment arbitrations challenged comprehensive debt restructuring processes. But um, there are other cases in which uh, investment treaties operate or investment arbitrations became uh, an indirect avenue of enforcement of sovereign debt claims. And there's, for example, a very recent case, uh, Gramercy funds against Peru, that has been um, decided a couple of weeks ago, and the decision is um, still not public, so I can't speak in, in much detail about this, but it the case concerned 
promissory notes issued by the Peruvian government as a compensation for uh, land expropriation in the 70s in the context of an agrarian reform. And these notes were subsequently acquired by Gramercy, a hedge fund, in the wake of the negotiation of the US-Peru free trade agreement. Uh, and Gramercy then brought an investment uh, arbitration alleging a breach of uh, treaty protection um, in relation to the payment formula devised by the Peruvian government. So, for example, th it is not the only case, but this is a recent example of um, how investment protection can matter to sovereign debt instruments beyond the context of uh, comprehensive debt restructuring processes. Of course, and I, and I think that's a that's a really important point. Um, and maybe in the context of the Venezuelan debt and and many other settings, exactly. we'll we'll see a, a, a widespread use of the bit system. I wanted to ask you about the third of your contracting developments, your your treaty drafting developments, where treaties, as I understand it, are taking pains, or at least some treaties are taking pains to say, in effect. Look, if you're an investor in a bond and a bond has been restructured using the collective action clause in the bond, then you can't uh, invoke rights under this investment treaty to claim some additional type of compensation. And I find that that development so interesting, in part because it reveals my complete ignorance of this mark. Of the, of the investment treaty system. Can you understand how somebody could possibly have rights under an investment treaty when the investment they hold has been modified in accordance with its own terms? I, I find that so mind-boggling, and I'm, I'm hoping you can just explain what concern is motivating treaties to, to uh, try to address this. Well, I think, I also think that these development is particularly interesting because to my mind it signals the maybe a bit clumsy attempt by treaty drafters to balance somehow uh, investment protection with the intent of creating a safe space for negotiated debt restructurings and to avoid harmful interference of holdout litigation through investment arbitration with debt restructuring processes. I think, well, the you may be right in pointing out that um, the, the modification of a debt instrument um, according to a collective action clauses included in that debt instrument only uh, exceptionally could constitute a, a treaty breach. But I think there might still be situations where investors could uh, try to bring a claim in this sense. And uh, I am thinking, for example, about uh, mandatory amendments of um, uh, government bonds uh, subject to domestic law, such as uh, in the case of the retrofit collective action clause in the, in the Greek case, or other situations where the employment of collective action clauses could be deemed as 
coercive, such as, for example, the aggregation of um, domestic claims with uh, external debt claims for the purposes of aggregated voting, which I think uh, I seem to recall that uh, you and me too um, described as a potential threat in, in a post. So similar similar situation in my mind could still give rise to a potential claim uh, to treaty breach. And I believe that these um, provisions try to um, address similar kinds of uh, situations, avoiding uh, or providing a safe space for negotiated restructurings. But uh, there is uh, there are, there are several aspects in the wording of these provisions that could, in my view, undermine this uh, objective. And we can maybe talk later about this. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's a level of proactivity, maybe that's kind of astonishing. If the if the underlying concern is to carve out a space where holdout investors can't interfere with debt restructuring negotiations. It's, I mean, in Argentina, it was, what, 15 years of arbitration, 10 years of arbitration, and they never even got a decision on the merits. It just, it's hard to imagine how this threat could be a, a you know, could somehow be disruptive, but I, I. So the 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 concern about coercive triggering of the CAC is, is interesting. So I would think there would be challenges if the if the the use of the CAC was coercive. There would be challenges under the law applicable to the contract, and if those challenges failed, then presumably the at least insofar as the contracts law is concerned, the modification would not have been coercive. Is it possible that a investment treaty tribunal could view it differently? Well, uh, it is very difficult to foresee uh, the um, possible reasoning of investment tribunals in this sense especially because most of the um, investment arbitrations concerning sovereign debt never really reached the merit stage. So it is very difficult. But I think the drafting, the very vague drafting of substantive protections in investment treaties, such as the fair and equitable treatment obligation in particular, could provide some space in this sense, uh, even though it it might be uh, it might be a tough a tough case. Um, another element, uh, though, that I would like to um, point out is that these provisions still preserve. So these provisions, uh, which limit the possibility to bring uh, claims uh, in relation to negotiated sovereign debt restructurings, still preserve the possibility very often to bring claims. Uh, for breaches of the anti-discrimination standards. And there's an interesting difference in the treaties in this sense, um, as, for example, the treaties negotiated by the European Union typically 
still preserve the possibility to um, bring claims for most favored nation uh, treatment, so, so for breaches of the most favored nation treatment obligation, and especially the national treatment obligation. Whereas, for example, the US-Mexico-Canada trade agreement does not maintain this uh, possibility. And there, what could see investors trying to claim that they received a differential treatment uh, with regards to domestic debt holders, for example, depending on the structure of the sovereign debt restructuring. Livia, um, I have so many questions and we're uh, running out of time quickly. So I, I'm in my head, I, I'm trying to choose my questions, but I, I have two and I'm going to put them forward and you can choose which or both uh, to answer, but we should give Mark a chance to ask at least another question, I think. So the, the, the two questions that I have is one, as I understand the structure that you've described and you, you did a really nice job of describing it, in a number of the restructurings that are happening now, so say take Ghana or Sri Lanka, there's a big issue about the treatment of local debt versus foreign debt. And it's not even clear what really is local and what is foreign, but let's say that the debt that is issued in domestic currency under domestic law to domestic residents is what we've usually thought of as local debt. If I buy, if I am sitting in the United States and I buy a bunch of this uh, crap or, you know, okay, there's probably a better name for it. All of a sudden, if I understand you correctly, under the US-Sri Lanka hypothetical investment treaty, I have now just sprinkled pixie dust on it. And it is now a nice, pretty foreign instrument that I can bring a claim under an investment treaty, possibly. So that's one question, just to clarify. I think you said that that, that literally was possible because it's all about nationality and it's not about the rights in your contract and the rights in your contract don't trump the national treaties. Now, the other question I have is the, the flip side of this. As you've explained, these, these investment treaties have a lot of really broad language and they say all sorts of stuff about fairness and blah, blah, blah. Could that be used by a country against hold out investors if you're having a very difficult negotiation could, for the bonds uh, or for example uh, for the countries say say you have some particular countries that are being obstreperous and not negotiating can you point can the country point to the investment treaty and say you are violating obligations under the investment treaty or do these investment treaty rights only go in one direction that is they are obligations of the country to investors but not obligations of investors of a country uh, investors 
to the country. I'm sorry of the confusing. Feel free to ignore the confusing uh, question. And then I promise I'm going to let Mark ask the last question. No, uh, well, I think you're you're right. The trick about um, investment agreements is that traditionally they only provide for uh, state obligations vis-a-vis -vis the foreign investors of the foreign investors who have the nationality of the other treaty party. So the obligations are definitely unilateral. Now, there are some um, developments, but uh, aimed at including uh, obligations for investors or the possibility to submit counterclaims. But uh, these developments are at a very embryonic stage. And for example, in the sample of uh, treaties, which uh, I observed, uh, which was relatively large, none of these treaties included any form of uh, possibility to submit counterclaims or um, obligations um, for the investors, actually. And with regards to your your um, previous uh, question, um, I think it is important to stress that um, the the ground of action provided by investment treaties is completely not completely, but it operates on a separate level as compared to um, the uh, contractual level, of course, and it operates on the basis of nationality. So the, the scenario which you outlined is, uh, is, is real. So if uh, there is a, an investment agreement between, say, Italy and Ghana, an investor in um, sovereign debt in Ghana could claim uh, could could uh, bring a claim um, to an arbitral tribunal on the basis of the rights provided in that treaty in relation to the contract so not obviously not on the basis of of uh, contractual rights i don't know so if this answers your question it did for me since i didn't understand the question but i did understand your answers which makes me glad that me too was not asking what? me. <laughs> Say what? 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 I, I since since I have been been graced with the last question though, I wanted to shift gears a little bit, Livia, if you don't mind, and ask you about something Me Too and I have been thinking about a bunch lately, which um, is ESG bonds and in particular green bonds issued by countries. And one of the things we've been noticing is that. The, there are all kinds of weird parts of these contracts, and, and the commitments are very weak, sometimes non-existent. But sometimes in these green bonds, the country has effectively promised it's going to use loan proceeds to do green stuff. And one of the things we've noticed is that if the country doesn't keep that promise, there are almost never any contractual enforcement mechanisms that the investor would have recourse to. And I'm wondering if there's any relevance here of the bilateral investment treaties. Are there, can you imagine situations where a country's failure to keep its commitment to 
invest in environmentally beneficial projects could give rise to a treaty violation? It is a very interesting question. I am not sure if I have a proper answer, but I would need to think more about this. But my sense is that it would be difficult mm, to bring a treaty claim in a relation to uh, violation of these use of proceeds provisions included in, in green bonds, um, because investment treaties provide a limited sets of uh, safeguards, which are framed in, in very vague terms, but it's, it's mostly about uh, expropriation, fair and equitable treatment, and anti-discrimination standards, and freedom of mm, capital transfers, and so on. The only possibility which I see uh, might be with regards of uh, a, a breach of legitimate expectations of the investor, but still without a financial damage occurring to the investor, I don't, I don't see how uh, this, how how there could be a treaty claim on on this uh, on this ground. Would also it matter because... if the investor had paid? a little bit more for the bond than for a bond that didn't have the green commitment well maybe may, maybe that could become relevant another element actually which i just thought about um is linked to the fact that several investment agreements include um, so called umbrella clauses which are uh, clauses that bind the state with regards to all sorts of other obligation obligations including contractual obligations it might have incurred to with investors now newer treaties do not provide umbrella clauses anymore but a lot of investment agreements were still in force provide uh, for umbrella clauses so maybe uh, an investor could try to bring a claim on this basis but again without a specific contractual obligation it would be it would be diff difficult but it is it is a possibility and it is worthwhile thinking about well, Livia, thank you so much for joining us. It was um, it was a super interesting conversation. I and I know so little about the investment treaty regime, so thank you for being so clear and for putting up with our kind of off the wall questions. Thanks so much for joining us.